Welcome to the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast, brought to you by the University of New South Wales, Sydney. This series explores the impact of COVID-19 on various aspects of women's health and wellbeing. Hello, I'm Eileen Baldry, and you're about to listen to a special episode of the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast, in which we discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the wellbeing of refugee and migrant women. Our episode today is a little different as we're recording it in two parts with four guests. We'll start our discussion with my guests, Najiba Wasfadost and Linda Bartolomei. Dr. Linda Bartolomei is the co-convener of the UNSW Forced Migration Research Network. And since 2002, she's been involved in a series of action research projects focused on identifying and responding to refugee women and girls at risk in camps and urban settings. Over the last three years, she's worked with the UNHCR Geneva and a team of women from refugee backgrounds to advocate for and monitor the inclusion of refugee women and girls protection needs and rights in the new Global Compact on Refugees. She's currently leading a multi-year project in five countries in the Asia-Pacific with colleague Eileen Pittaway to support the implementation and monitoring of the commitments to refugee women and girls in the GCR, that is the Global Compact. And now to Najiba. Since seeking asylum in Australia in 2000, Najiba has established herself as a community and global representative for refugees. She has been actively involved in the development of refugee-led networks, both at the regional and global level, which focus on bringing together refugee-led organisations and refugee changemakers from around the world to gather to discuss their lived experiences and propose solutions for more effective and sustainable refugee policy. She's the Deputy Chair, Australian National Committee of Refugee Women, ANCOR, a founding member of the Asia-Pacific Network of Refugees, APNOR, the Global Refugee-Led Network. ANCOR has a long history of partnering with the then UNSW Centre for Refugee Research in high-impact research with and for refugee women, and is a partner in the current Refugee Women and Girls Key to the Compact project, led by Linda Bartolomei and Eileen Pittaway. Linda and Najiba, thank you so much for joining us today. And first to you, Linda. You and Eileen Pittaway have a long history of leading large international research projects with refugee and displaced women across the world. Can you tell us a little about your current work linked to the new global compact on refugees and the ways you are working with refugee women to address the impacts of COVID-19? Thank you, Eileen, and thank you again for the invitation to join the podcast and this really important opportunity to highlight some of the many devastating impacts of the current COVID crisis on refugee women and girls. And you'll be hearing more about that from Najiba and Hasna in the second episode. But equally importantly, um, for the opportunity to highlight some of the many important things that refugee women themselves are doing as ever in emergencies, as first responders in this crisis. The current project that um, we're leading in partnership with both Najiba and Hasna's organisations, among others, is a project funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade 
And it very much builds on what is now something like 70 collective years of research with refugee women and girls that Eileen and I have been engaged in in some 21 countries. And the current project came about because of our active involvement in the drafting of the new Global Compact on Refugees, which was signed off by the vast majority of the world's governments, including Australia, back at the end of 2018. And we became involved at the invitation of UNHCR Geneva in order to ensure that the text of the compact reflected the particular protection needs and rights of refugee women and girls to ensure that it had a very strong focus on some of the biggest risks that they face and continue to face. And they are particularly risks of endemic sexual and gender-based violence. But equally importantly, to ensure a very strong focus on the recognition of the skills, capacities and knowledges that refugee women bring to solving the problems that they face. So women's participation, refugee women's participation was a really big part of that advocacy for inclusion in the global compact policy. As part of that gender audit process, when we were approached by UNHCR, I think similar to what we're doing today, talking on this podcast with our refugee women partners, we insisted that UNHCR fund and include refugee women in that team. So we worked as a collaborative team. We were successful in our advocacy. The compact is unquestionably stronger in its gender focus than it was. That led to our current project funded by DFAT because one of the things that became very clear to us in the course of that advocacy, governments, NGOs, UNHCR staff spoke to us about the importance of ensuring that you know, fairly high-flown policy principles could be adapted in practice to local and diverse contexts. We were successful in receiving funding from DFAT to undertake the current project in the countries, Malaysia, Thailand, Myanmar, and also in Bangladesh, to look at how do we take those policy principles and apply them at a grassroots and a local level. So we're particularly working with academic, NGO, and refugee women partners in the five countries to document the problems and to work with women to develop projects and approaches that actively involve refugee women, refugee women leaders in responding particularly to issues of sexual and gender-based violence in different contexts, protracted emergencies, refugee settings, and now indeed in the time of COVID-19. Thank you so much, Linda. You've outlined an extremely deep and broad amount of work and, and focus. And so I'd like to now come to you, Najiba, to ask you a bit more about that. And from your current work in Australia and across the Asia Pacific with refugee communities, can you tell us about some of the most significant impacts of the COVID-19 on refugee and asylum-seeking women? Sure. Thank you very much, Eileen, also for actually having me as part of this podcast. I think the COVID-19 pandemic itself has brought mass restriction on the movement, not only in Australia, but across Asia Pacific and globally. 
and it's affecting the majority of international actors, service providers, operations. And in Australia, we've been consulting and making dialogue along with refugee women and girls through surveys, through phone calls and through virtual consultations. And we've heard from many of them that they are going through heightened risks, not just of COVID-19 itself, but also due to the cultural norms and underrepresentation. They're facing a wider social, economic and political impacts on their lives. Especially in Australia, we've heard a lot from women around, you know, the lack of consultation, the lack of inclusion in decision making across the sector in policy and emergency response, leading to much more or less effective response in Australia. We've been hearing a lot from many refugee women around the impact of losing their jobs. We've been consulting and hearing refugee women who have been retail assistants, hairdressers, or they have just arrived in Australia and have opened up a business in the last six to nine months and how they have not been included as part of the stimulus package introduced in Australia. So they've been losing not only their jobs, but also their income. And I think more importantly, we've heard so much from women around the double role that they play, not only in terms of their employment, but also, you know, as as the school starts closing, the duty of care towards the children and the informal care within families with the consequences of limited work and economic opportunities brought a lot of greater burden on women. We heard from refugee female teachers around, you know, the lack of literacy that a lot of refugee mothers are facing and stressing as digital learning has become a totally a new concept in Australia and there were not enough support to support these women, but also the mental trauma, distress and anxiety that women were building and not necessarily having enough psychological support to actually deal with those obstacles in particular. We heard from so many elderly that the social norms often place them in a much more vulnerable situation. Responsibilities for a lot of women has increased, you know, as as the elderly of their family members start becoming sick and the greater of risks of becoming infected. And more importantly, again, we heard from so many women and girls that not necessarily they're having unique healthcare needs or they're not having enough health access to respond to COVID in Australia, especially with asylum seeker women. We've heard around the lack of Medicare access, the lack of primary health, and not necessarily the National Health Response in Australia have covered or looked at the needs of women with temporary status. So many of those women have faced the risk of homelessness. Many of them have faced the risk of not having enough in terms of their own food and sanitization. And that has made a lot of them to worry. As a result, we've heard of women, how the domestic violence or family violence has increased due to self-isolation. But again, because they're living with the perpetrators at the current time, they haven't been able to actually make enough reporting on the case of violence itself. So in Australia, even though that we are living in a very developed country and we have a government that's still making as much support as possible to provide refugee women or to provide citizens in general, we are facing a lot of challenges. So if we are to compare these challenges across Asia-Pacific countries in countries where women not necessarily have any legal status or they're not necessarily part of any national health response plan. So as we start consulting with women across the Asia-Pacific regions, we heard from many women that they're facing greater challenge. We've heard from women that they've been hearing around social distancing. They've been hearing around washing your hands with soap. They've been hearing around simply calling a doctor. But none of these measures are actually 
actually available to those women in Thai Burma border camps. These measures are not available to women in Cox's Bazar. These measures are not available to undocumented refugee women in Iran, or these are not available to displaced people. So we heard a lot around how a lot of women are desperately having poor hygiene and sanitization facilities. Not necessarily they can go into a space of social distancing in detention centers when dozens are pushed into the same cell or do they receive ongoing health alerts the way we do through the social media or via internet access? That's not even possible in certain countries. So I think the protocol that internationally we've been trying to push and use it as a precaution measures or protective measures towards COVID-19 crisis not necessarily has been realistic to many women and girls in very poor and vulnerable situation across the Asia region. As we speak today, we hear from women ongoingly how they have been abandoned and they have been forgotten in many of the current health response plans. For example, we've just been consulting with undocumented refugee women and girls in Iran, and they've been saying that, you know, around the sanction of U.S. financial and donor support to Iran has stopped and how a lot of them, not only that they're not captured within the UNHCR response because they're undocumented, but also some other philanthropic support that were being given to them is also cut. So they are now in a greater risk of getting COVID-19. Similarly, we are hearing a lot from many countries across the Asia Pacific, you know, as the nations are closing their borders and again, abandoning the ones that are mostly impacted by COVID-19. The resettlement suspension itself has increased the burden and the trauma for many women and girls. A lot of countries are no longer willing to do any resettlement. And it's, it's really a question or it actually highlights itself the challenges that many women and girls are facing. We've also been working with so many women and girls in 12 countries across the Asia region. And a lot of them not only complain around the lack of financial support. For example, a lot of women are voicing and saying that they need to break their quarantine measures because they need to go out for search of food. And that's the only way they can actually try some food from the streets. Or we hear from women that have been affected by COVID-19 and saying that doing one COVID-19 test is going to cost them $80 US. And how are they going to afford that? We hear a lot again from women from across Asia, the lack of access to health, like alcohol or antiseptic gel or even soap or even clean water is not even available for these women and girls. So it's really difficult for them to actually maintain their protection uh, or prevent from the COVID-19. But I think I cannot emphasize enough around the lack of psychological and emotional support. A lot of women, refugee women and girls are actually suffering from mental illness and distress caused by COVID-19. And as they are not only facing all of these challenges with COVID-19, but they're facing also unemployment. They're facing also the lack of income, the lack of food. So these are the challenges that we continuously hear as COVID-19 maybe in some developed countries is improving, but in a lot of the poorer countries is actually increasing. Najibi, you've painted an overwhelmingly horrible picture of the experience and the the situation for many refugee women and girls and asylum seeker women and girls, not only in Australia, but very particularly in our poorer neighbours around the Pacific and Asia. And so I'm wondering... How are the women and refugee women-led organisations that you're involved with, how are they responding to these almost unimaginable challenges? 
it is a very difficult time. As I said, the pandemic, as it, it really deepens the economic and social distress within the communities. And I think it's becoming much more difficult as the restriction of movement and social distancing is increasing as well. So I think one thing that I want to emphasize before I actually um, respond to the question is that we really need to recognize and acknowledge that refugees are the first and the last responders to any crisis. And I think COVID-19 pandemic is a true indication of this. We clearly see that a lot of international actors are either forced to leave countries or not able to travel anymore. And the situation is left again in the hands of refugees themselves. So we, for example, within an organization which I work or I have co-founded named Asia Pacific Network of Refugees, what we've been trying to do is to actually put together a global advocacy initiative named Hashtag Refugees Rise. And what we've been trying to do is to bring together refugee women leaders across the Asia Pacific region to mobilize support for their communities in response to COVID-19. And through this campaign, we are actually featuring a lot of refugee women leaders and activists from all walks of life. And that includes refugee women doctors, refugee women nurses, refugee women teachers, refugee community aid workers. And we can show the resilience in the face of adversity and highlighting the importance of refugee leadership within the COVID-19. For example, in Australia, we're working with an asylum seeker refugee woman nurse who is working 10 hours a shift in her local clinic just to ensure not only she's helping the Australian citizen, but she's also to contribute back to the economy of this country, but also helping the most vulnerable, the temporary refugee woman residents in Australia that might not necessarily be able to have support to education around COVID-19 infection control. This asylum seeker refugee woman nurse in Sydney in Australia has been able to produce bilingual educational information in her language to provide it to temporary refugee women in Australia to ensure that they receive the education in their own language in order to be able to prevent and control COVID-19. Or similarly, we've been able to mobilize the diaspora, the resettled refugee women in Australia to actually provide remote online education to children in Malaysia. We've heard a lot from our refugee colleagues in Malaysia that the refugee-led learning centers have been closed as a result of COVID and many children are actually pushed to go and stay home and not necessarily these refugee learning centers are being supported through any other means. And the least we could do is to actually find out other refugee women who have had greater opportunity to education as a result of resettlement in Australia to provide remote education to those children while they are at home. Or to give you another example is again, we've, we've been working with another refugee woman in Iran who has been able to support providing emergency food packages to the affected women with COVID-19. We've been also able to produce around 500 ready-made masks in Iran where it has been distributed to women who doesn't necessarily have the money to provide masks. So I think what we have been trying to do is first trying to provide life-saving material information to the vulnerable communities that are not necessarily having access to this preventive information. We've realized that, you know, it's sometimes we are tended to be so busy with the processes that make so time-consuming to produce one simple information. For example, we've been speaking to Thai Burma border colleagues, and they've been saying that they have been promised to receive translated materials in Burmese, but that's not what they need. They actually needed caring in language, you know, and, and because our international actors not necessarily have had the time to consult, 
information that we're reaching to them was in Burmese, not necessarily capturing the needs of that particular camp. So we've been trying, as I said previously, to hold virtual consultation. We've been trying to hold live webinars by our refugee women doctors from Australia to promote awareness and disseminate information to communities who may not have access to information in host countries. Similarly, as I said, we've been producing bilingual education videos on COVID-19 prevention, again, through different languages to ensure that those women who doesn't understand English, they have access to translated materials. And we've been also trying to advocate to a greater level and producing national and regional statements to governments and ensuring that, you know, the governments are able to maybe look into opening the resettlement opportunity again. We do understand that currently resettlement is suspended and it's impacting families so much. It's impacting women and girls' lives so much. We have, we've spoken to many women outside Australia that have been granted visa, but their travel has been suspended and they have been put in a greater risk. These women are trying to run away from violence. They are victims of torture and trauma and rape. But unfortunately, that resettlement has been stopped to them and they have been put in a greater risk. So for us, the little that we can do is that we try to coordinate and collaborate our efforts amongst what is present within the diaspora and the refugee communities and try to give that in a fast manner. I think delivering information and delivering aid in a timely manner is so important and so crucial during the COVID-19 pandemic. Najiba, that, it's just an amazing amount of work that these organisations are doing. And whilst your organisations are supporting refugee women and girls, what sort of support do these organisations need themselves during the crisis? And, and perhaps this might include, as you comment on that, the value that you see in the current UNSW-led project that you and your organisations are major partners in. So like many of our fellow refugee-led initiatives and allies, we really believe that any response or the COVID-19 response to support refugees really needs to listen, reflect, and ultimately change so that refugees like ourselves can meaningfully participate in not only strategizing, but also funding and implementing programs and policies that influence our lives. Meaningful inclusion really requires resources. And until today, most refugee-led activities and entities are self-supported. They really have been relying on volunteers who have, or in some cases, been working for decades. As I mentioned to you, Refugees Rise is one example. And what we've been trying to do is to realigning the existing resources to support initiatives that is promoting meaningful participation and recognizing that there are considerable capacities within refugee women to respond to crises like we are facing right now. And to be honest, the value of projects like UNSW that I have been partnered with, it's so important and crucial because it is these projects through the genuine partnership and relationship and the support that we've received by the University of New South Wales and the team of Eileen and Linda, we've been able to show a real representation of voices by refugees. You know, a lot of refugee women have been empowered and upskilled and supported 
to achieve greater equality, to be exposed to more opportunities, and ultimately more social protection has been built. It helps us to build more political willingness around the issues that we try to advocate. The project of UNSW not only has helped refugee women to be empowered and to be strong in what they do, but it also has helped to bring much more of an international cooperation around what is being happening right now. Look, thank you so much for explaining all of that, Najiba. I think it's so important for people to hear not only the extremely difficult circumstances and, and dire and, in fact, life-threatening circumstances that so many refugee women and girls and asylum seeking women and girls are experiencing, but to hear from you about some of the initiatives, and I'm sure there's much more that you could have said, but some of the initiatives that your organisations, together with UNSW, have been taking to try and address some of this. And as you say, to, to build capacity to help some women and girls to make things better for their own communities. So thank you very much. So I'd like to just thank both you and Linda for joining us and for all of your insights into this topic. Now, to continue our discussion about the impacts of COVID-19 on refugee and asylum seeker women and girls, I'm now joined by Hasna Hussein and Eileen Pitaway. Hasna's parents come from Myanmar, which people might know as Burma. She's a Rohingya refugee woman living in Malaysia, where she was born to refugee parents living in Malaysia. She's currently volunteering at Tenaganita, a human rights NGO organization that works to promote and protect human rights for migrants, refugees, women and children. Hasna plays a key role in not only providing support to refugee women in the Rohingya community, but equally champions the inclusion and protection of all refugee women. Tanaganita is a key partner in the current Refugee Women and Girls Key to the Global Compact project, led by Linda Bartolomei and Eileen Pitaway. And then Dr. Eileen Pitaway is Adjunct Associate Professor in the School of Social Sciences at UNSW. From 1999 to 2013, Eileen was the Director of the Centre for Refugee Research an Associate Professor in the School of Social Sciences and International Studies at UNSW. She now continues her research activities and involvement with the university in an honorary capacity. And the major focus of her work has been the prevention of and response to the rape, sexual abuse and gender-based violence experienced by refugee women, both overseas and following resettlement in Australia. And in 2012, she was made a member of the Order of Australia for this wonderful work with refugees. First, I'd like to start with you, Hasna. We've just heard from Najiba about some of the key risks faced by refugee women and girls from diverse communities in Australia and, and from across the Asia-Pacific region. As a member of the Rohingya refugee community, who I understand form the majority of the refugee population in Malaysia, could you tell us a bit more about some of the specific impacts being faced by Rohingya and other refugee women living in Malaysia? Thank you, Eileen. As Najiba said, living is, uh, as refugee is not as easy as people think, especially living in a country where we don't have any basic right or we have very limited basic human rights. The majority of us as refugee in Malaysia, having 
huge impact, especially due to COVID-19 on women, girls and children. Because at this moment, we are unable to seek help. We are unable to protect ourselves from xenophobic, from harassment in the house, SDBV kind of thing. But the main risk or main effect being livelihood and xenophobic in Malaysia that currently going on toward the refugee community, in particular Rohingya refugees. We're, we're going to go on now and unpack that a little bit more. And it's very distressing to have heard all of the ways in which refugee women and girls are affected so negatively by COVID-19. But I understand that Tenaganita, the NGO you work with in Malaysia, is also a major partner in the UNSW-led project. And so maybe tell us a little bit about the current project being developed with refugee women leaders in Malaysia to respond to some of the things that you've just talked about and respond to the major impacts of COVID-19. The current project that we are into with UNSW, it's empowerment, the women and girls, and also participation of women and girls. I think this project has been very effective among the Malaysian refugee women and girls because this is the opportunity that we are looking forward. It's been a while where women has been left behind, not been taken into consideration in any kind of decision making, any kind of participation. But now we have this project where we empower women to support another woman and girls in order to respond to the effect of COVID-19 or other issues. So now with this project, we are empowering women. At the same time, we are building confidence in each woman to speak out and to seek help when they need and when they think another person in need. So I think Tanaganita playing role in mobilizing and interpreting and etc. But what main focus here are the empowerment that being built between UNSW and other NGOs in Malaysia. We have trained few very good leaders who came forward and seek for more training, for more empowerment, for more valuable knowledge that they could share with another refugee woman. So it's more like building a bridge between different communities because it's used to be like specific communities helping their own community only. Like women in Somalis only communicate with Somali women. Rohingyas only communicate with Rohingya women. But I came from the Rohingya background where Rohingya women have very limited access to each other. Whether they are not familiar with the technology or they are so in pressure with the family member to not contact each other. But with the project of UNSW bringing all different communities together really give a big, huge impact in building women's empowerment and leadership. Could you say a little more about how that empowerment, how, how women are supported and empowered and how capacity is built? What sort of training does your organisation and, and perhaps it's also in partnership with UNSW, can you say a little more about how you do that and, and really what it looks like for the women going through that training? Last year, last year and this year, we have training workshop for women from different community coming together. It was a time when women started to meet another community woman, for example, Somalis, Afghanis, Rohingyas, Myanmar Muslim, meeting each other and sharing their issues in the communities. So when they heard from another woman who are speaking out about their issues, about their community challenges, they feel that 
we are not alone in this world who are facing. And it is okay for me to tell you that I'm facing this kind of issues. And when Linda, Ellen and the team came into the crown and give training of human rights, privilege, underprivileged issues. So the women started to understand where and how to use their voice. Instead of just telling the family member and family member not responding to their issue, they started to understand that mental health is a serious, serious topic to discuss. SGBV is seriously needed to be discussed because if we keep silent and we don't seek help, nobody going to come and give help. Especially there is one particular session where Eileen have extremely awesomely explained on privilege. So they was wondering why the white privilege, I'm sorry to use this, but white privilege or Western privilege is being used in different organizations. But when they understand the meaning of privilege and how to use it, they understand that if we have certain things to bring up to the global level, if we can't go there, at least we have someone with privilege will stand there for us and speak our problem to discuss with the world that this is an issue that we want to be discussed and we want to be heard. I mean, that's a very inspiring thing to be hearing, particularly in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis when empowerment and feeling and knowing that you can speak out and you, you have a voice is a really important aspect. So that's so important to hear that. I'd now like to turn to Eileen Pitway, to you, Eileen. Um, Hello. Hi, lovely to talk with you. Look, we've heard from both Hasna and Najiba about the terrible impacts that COVID-19 crisis, as well as all the other things that they experience, all of these things are having on refugee women in Australia and across the Asia region. And given that you, I mean, none, none of us are able to travel, but you're not able to travel to the four countries on which your current project is focused, can you tell us a little about how you're continuing to support your partners in trying to address some of the issues and what you're learning from this that might inform policy and further research in the future. Thank you, yeah. I think as you've heard from the two women who've spoken already, Linda and I are very privileged, we've always felt, to work with such strong women. Refugee women are not vulnerable, helpless, hopeless people, the ones that are so often shown on the television series and on posters, we've always found refugee women to be incredibly strong with lots of knowledge. So that when we started this project, our hypothesis was that given support, that refugee women themselves could do an awful lot to work with the problems of their communities, that they didn't always need white academics or international NGOs telling them what they needed and doing things for them. What they did need, though, was often the support and the resources so that they could do it themselves. Bit of a feeling that because they hadn't had the opportunity for a number of reasons to get education, oh, they couldn't do it because they weren't. Some, some of these amazing women leaders are preliterate. Others have minimal education. But gosh, they've all got knowledge experience and they know the problems more than any academic can ever find out. They have lived the problems. They know what they are and can articulate them. So that, that's the base we came from. We've been working for the first two stages of the project, asking women what supports they would need. 
that they're not getting now to help them formulate some of the programs, be involved in the implementation of the programs that have come from this new piece of international soft law that Linda was talking about. Because it's really important that women be involved. It's stated all through the document that women must be there up front, that refugees must be there, that women participate in every aspect of service provision and solving problems. And that's basically what our project is about. So how do we do that? So as a first principle, we went and asked the women, what do you need? What are the problems? What solutions do you see? And if you were to be front and center in looking at the solutions, what can we do to help you? So we got to that and suddenly COVID hit. So having heard from the women and found that our hypothesis about their capacity and the capability was was absolutely there they were fantastic we had no problems at all in thinking right they need to go forward these women are already starting to work and are more than capable of taking projects forward to help their own women and men and children deal with the covid epidemic so we were very, very fortunate in that DFAT, our funder, gave us complete permission to rearrange our budget and to use the funding, not for us to go back and run more training and sit down with the women, but they trusted us to trust the women to devise their own programs. We were able to find various ways of getting the funding through to women in four countries. The women have designed simple projects which they know are needed and they have gone ahead and started delivering services within the communities. It's worked even better than I had ever anticipated it would. It's involved multi-stakeholders and it's involved different ways of bringing things together because every refugee situation is different. On the Thai-Burma border the women have been working there, living there for 20 to 30 years we have been providing training on their request to them for 20 years. Those women are capable and they have systems in place. So all we had to do was get the funding to them once they had devised their programs and they are off and running doing it. It's very different in Cox's Bazaar where the politics of the situation means that even though the women are just as capable, they haven't had the opportunities and it's impossible us to get funding directly there but there's a wonderful network of supportive NGOs and the UNHCR team there who are willing to get the women the resources they need to do this work so the women are starting there. In Malaysia it's a sort of a mix there are wonderful organizations and fantastic leaders already in place working with the NGOs and they themselves have now come together and are appointing women leaders and getting the resources to those women leaders for them to work within their communities. In Cox's Bazaar, the NGOs said that the thing that everyone was asking for were very simple psychosocial support materials, both for staff who are suffering greatly and for the refugees and the refugee volunteers and mobilizers who are working. And the challenge here is that, as I said, some of the refugees who are amazing mobilizers are pre-literate. There are about five different languages in use. And the request was for something maybe simple as graphics, sets of posters and very simple messages about psychosocial support. So we have developed 12 different modules 
looking at aspects of how do you deal with grief? How do you deal with a family who's just lost everyone and can't go to the funeral? How do you deal in a camp when you can't even bury your dead or bury them as they should be buried? How do you deal with the anger if you're a totally untrained worker? It's the whole notion of accidental counselor. And these 12 modules have been, through the great technology available now, been made as PowerPoint presentations with amazing graphics done by a refugee woman. They turned into a very simple video format and can be uploaded onto smartphones, on any social media app. And they are going out now to our partners and their partners and being translated directly into the languages that are needed on the ground so that these materials, which were done at the request of the refugee groups, of the um, NGOs working with us, have now this week gone out to all of the sites we're working in. And there are people already beginning to translate them so that the refugees and the ground level NGOs who um, are local, who often themselves haven't had a university education, have something simple that they can use. Thank you, Eileen, for outlining that. I'd just like to follow up something that you began talking about in a, a sort of a way, that the refugee women and girls, the asylum seeker women and girls, have the knowledge they need, have the lived experience, are more than capable. And you have outlined a little the ways in which an academic or not just academic, but a, an activist academic mm. uh, group can be involved and, and support and work with them. And so maybe just in closing, you might like to comment on the role that you think academic research or some form of it can play and should play in crises such as the COVID-19 crisis. And I know that you and, and Linda and both Najiba and Hasna have all been in a number of crisis times and, and have worked with organisations during a number of different crises. So maybe just comment a little on the way in which that academic work can contribute and assist. Thank you for the question. I think it's a challenge because, as you use the word activist, our work is very much focused on change and achieving maximum impact for the people with whom we partner. We hate the idea of refugees and vulnerable people as subjects. We see the refugees we work with as our partners in research, working towards looking for solutions that can be implemented. The approach we take when we start working with refugee groups is to sit down at the beginning. We call it laying on the table what we can do. They can bring all of their refugee experience, their lived experience. They bring evidence about their lives and they bring solutions. They know what needs to be done. What we bring is our academic knowledge. We bring understandings of systems outside the camps and the refugee sites. We know how to work with the UN. We're often quite good at getting funding for local level activities. So we see it as the partnership, putting on the table what we each can bring and then working together. For us, the academic side of this is bringing real academic rigor to fully documenting everything we do and everything that happens and then analyzing it so that it can be passed on. So that we can say, if you sit down with women and involve them in decision-making, this is best practice in how to do this. These are the huge challenges that women face. 
here are some of the things that can be done and, and the barriers to that. Let's get all of this documented. Let's look at why it's happening. Let's look at the uh, literature. Let's look at what's happening in other places and see if we can bring it together to come out with solutions. And I think one of the ways that we have been relatively successful here is we've been able to work on the ground with these amazing women and men. There are a lot of refugee men who also support this work, great NGOs, great international organizations who really are focused on solutions. And at the same time, we have access to the UN, to the UNHCR in particular in Geneva, so with the work we've done, with the evidence we collect and analyze, we have been able to have direct access to policy-making procedures, to informing policy in cases writing some, and also into soft international law. So that's how I see the academic work goes from activism right through to almost pure academic work and converts to policy and something that's usable. It's been a fabulous journey for me. I am now retired in being able to pull the strands together. But the amazing thing has been watching the refugee women involved in this. When Linda and I go to the UN these days, we don't speak. The refugee women who are part of our team speak. And they speak so powerfully that people listen. And we're often hearing comments like, wow, they're not just telling sad stories. They really know what they're talking about. They're analyzing it. And we can work with what they're saying. So for us, it's a fantastic way to work. Well, thank you. I think what I've been hearing over these last two sessions in talking with and listening to Linda and Najiba and Eileen and Hashna, what I've been hearing is that genuine partnership is so powerful in this area and, and that the ways in which you work together and cooperate and collaborate in pooling your knowledge and your resources and the excellent solutions and outcomes and the strength of those is is palpable in what I've been hearing you saying. So I'd like to thank all four of you. Thank you, Eileen and Hasna. Thank you, Linda and Najiba for joining us today. Thank you for your insights and for sharing those very important understanding of this area of not only how COVID-19 has impacted on women and girls who are refugees or asylum seekers, but also more generally the lives and, and the ways in which women and girls in these circumstances are building their capability and their strength and being made known to the world and to the rest of us how we can and should support them but also what they can bring to us so thank you thank you so much thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this podcast thank you Elliot for having us here thank you Eileen more information about this podcast, our guests and upcoming episodes, please visit the UNSW Equity, Diversity and Inclusion website.